Welcome to Humanity Unlocked, where we know that listening to someone's story with an intent to gain insight is an important key in unlocking each person's humanity. Your host, Kimberly, is known for her profound curiosity in human behavior, giving her a long-standing reputation for being a deeply engaged and exceptional listener. Each one of us has a unique origin story that helps to explain the unfolding of the path we've traveled. When the story gets told, it provides a glimpse into the context and nuances that we, the listeners, may have otherwise never considered. Join Kimberly as she embarks on the journey of a lifetime to unlock and reveal the humanity of every person she meets. Here's Kimberly. Hey everyone, welcome back to Humanity Unlocked. I am your host, Kimberly Daya, and today we have Michelle with us in the studio. I met Michelle through one of my gym buddies who recommended her for the podcast. Um, she really, she couldn't say enough great things about her, so when Michelle agreed to come on and tell her story, I was just absolutely thrilled. Um, Michelle is here today to talk about alcoholism. Uh, what makes her story particularly interesting for me is the fact that you would never, ever guess that someone in Michelle's shoes would struggle with uh, this addiction. She grew up in Davis with parents who were married, remained married. She did well in school. She played basketball throughout college, and she went on to work in education as both a teacher and high school principal over the past 20 years. Today, Michelle is married with three adult thriving children and is nearly two years sober. What her story teaches us is that alcoholism does not discriminate based on gender, age, race, ethnicity, or socioeconomic status. From coal miners and truck drivers to attorneys and physicians, alcoholism is an equal opportunity destroyer. Today, Michelle is going to walk us through her story. We're going to talk about the role alcohol played in her life up until October 14th, 2021, when she took the first step onto her path to recovery. Please help me welcome my guest today, Michelle. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yes. So, okay. Um, so as I do with all of my guests, we're going to start by giving everyone a little bit of background. As I said, you are married. You're a married mom of three grown kids. You just launched your third child into college, making you an official empty nester. You grew up in Davis uh, with one younger brother and parents who, like I said, remained married. And at a very young age, you experienced a significant, I mean, beyond significant a growth spurt. I mean, I'm 5'10", and I thought 5'4 in sixth grade was tall. You stood at six feet tall by sixth grade, and this alone made it uh, incredibly difficult for you to feel comfortable on your own skin, which I get, and it's, a, it's actually an important detail to mention as this does come up later in your story. Uh, but at the age of 18, you had your first drink of alcohol, and the way you described what you experienced with the first drink is something that I've actually heard described by others uh, in recovery almost the same exact way. And I think that this might be a good place for us to begin. Can you talk a little bit about what you remember the first time you had a drink? So the first time I had a drink, I, I was actually 15. And um, I remember we were going to a middle school dance and um, we took some swigs out of uh, a bottle in my parents' liquor cabinets. Um, ironically, they were not drinkers. They had it there for other people. For guests. <laughs> yeah, for guests. Um, uh, little did they know it would all be mostly water by the time I moved out of the house. But um, oh, wow. I um, I remember feeling a sense of calm. Um, I remember it just giving me peace. Mm -hmm. I remember exactly how it felt going down, you know, my throat, the physical mm -hmm. aspect of it. 
but it just slowed down my mind and made me feel more comfortable in my yeah. own skin, as you mentioned before. Yeah, yeah, I can I can see that. And or were you an overthinker even when you were at fifteen? I've always been an overthinker. Yeah. Um, I, I something to note: I didn't get drunk the first time I tried alcohol. Right. Um, but I I did try to replicate that feeling time and time again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so this was like eighth grade. 15? Um, it was actually, I was, uh, it was ninth grade. Ninth grade. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. And Got we it. were in junior high. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Ninth grade was in, at a, in a junior high setting when I grew up. And so, um, yeah. Did you consider yourself at that point? Like, um, like my daughter likes to use the phrase socially awkward, like for herself, cause she's introverted and she's, you know, she's tall too. She's five, seven, but, uh, were you, was it a, like sort of a social lubricant? Was that what it was? Or was it more just it quieted your own mind to where you just felt comfortable regardless of who was around? Uh, it was a double whammy for me because it yeah. did both. Okay. Um, it definitely um, made me feel like I could fit in socially. Um, but then it was doing something very uh, significant internally to me. Yeah, like calming. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, get, I get it. Okay. Um in our pre-interview, you spoke about being somewhat closer to your dad than you were your mom, and she she battled with some health issues, and she tended to be um, a lot more critical of you, and you talked about really wanting to go to therapy. You begged your parents to let you see a therapist, and, and they had refused. It sound, sounds like maybe they didn't uh, believe in therapy, but you had access to local ther- a local therapist's office that was free for high school students, so you... Um, decided to take advantage of that option without your parents knowing um, what at that point in high school what was the motivation to seek out therapy and this would have been like in the 80s oh yes yeah so what was the motivation to seek out therapy um so I think um it was a combination of me being a normal teenager um and going through my own emotions and not knowing how to navigate through those but then also um it goes back to that feeling I, I described earlier. I just didn't feel um, like I was comfortable in my own skin, but I also didn't feel like I was ever good enough. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I just felt an inner turmoil that I didn't know how to walk through successfully. Right. So I thought if I got help doing that, right? Um, I didn't go that many times but I I, to this day remember my dad's response when I wanted to go to therapy and it it struck me as surprising because um, we talked about a lot of things in my family it was a very loving family Mm -hmm. Um, but my dad's sister had a lot of mental health issues had gone to a therapist um, and uh, the therapist according to the what they told me had slept with my aunt and so he just didn't trust the whole concept Mm -hmm. of of therapy and um i was glad i went i did find comfort in it because it basically told me that i i i wasn't alone in my feelings um but then i didn't i didn't return to therapy until um midway through my first marriage okay so it's not um, something i maintained did you have an out prior to starting therapy? Did you have an outlet or something like? Were you close to your parents in the way that you could confide in them and talk to them about what you were going through, and they just didn't necessarily have the tools to guide you, or were that where did you just not have any outlets? We were we were as I said very close, and mm-hmm. I could talk to them, um, but I didn't feel like I could talk to them about really big things sometimes, mm-hmm. um, and I knew by that age. I was um, 
I wasn't drinking often, but I was, I was a binge drinker yeah. and I, I was always a, from the first time I got drunk, I was a blackout drinker. Right. Um, and my dad, um, had been the same type of drinker in his yeah. life for that reason. He just didn't drink. He just didn't. Okay. I only saw him drunk once in my entire life. Never saw my mom uh, drunk. Oh. Um, so I just didn't feel like I could talk to them. Plus I had an older boyfriend. Mm -hmm. Um, I became sexually active at a really young age. Mm -hmm. I think it was right before my 16th birthday. Mm -hmm. And that was definitely not territory that I could approach with my parents. Understandable. Yeah. <laughs> Which is the case with most teenagers. Um, okay. So you actually, you went on to attend Chico state for college where you played basketball and you're listed in the athletic hall of fame over there. And it, it sounds like from what you described, the athleticism, um, and your role in the team was your first priority. So you weren't like a frequent drinker in college, but when you did drink, as you said, um, you didn't, you didn't just get a little bit drunk. You would, you would black out and looking back, was, was that the intention to drink to the point where you black out or did you drink to uh, or was it more the result of not having that built-in off switch that flips when we know we've had enough? Was the goal to black out? It was never to black out. Okay. I always thought that this time would be different and I wouldn't black out. The problem with me is I would begin drinking. I would get, it would calm my mind. It would give me confidence, but I couldn't stop. I didn't have an off switch. Okay. So I would feel good for a few drinks, but I never stopped at a few drinks. Mm -hmm. It was, it was never enough. Um, you know, because of that, I, I made, um, obviously tons of poor decisions. Some of them I can't remember. Yeah. Um, a lot of them around, um, you know, um, uh, being promiscuous. Yeah. I mean, I didn't feel like I could be intimate without being intoxicated. Right, right. Um, yeah, it's funny. <clears throat> in talking about the off switch, I have we've talked about this before with other with other friends of mine and with family and it seems like that that one thing and I just labeled it the off switch, I don't know what it's called, but um that is the difference between that, that's a main difference between people who tend to abuse alcohol and those who don't. Um, because for like, like my husband and I, we talk about how alcohol starts to not taste good after a while. And you start to get a little <laughs> feeling in your stomach and you're just like, okay, I'm done. I've had enough. And then when I've talked to um, friends or relatives that are in recovery, they're like, nope, can't relate. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, I, keep going I wish and going. I could relate. I wish um, that is the difference between a normie and an alcoholic. <laughs> and, um, I, I brought this up with you. You yeah. know, I, I'll look at tables after dinner, like when we're getting up from a res restaurant mm -hmm. and people leave like partially consumed drinks on the table. And I, I, I just don't understand that. Like, yeah. or pouring out wine because it's been open for a little while. Like those are things that I just can't relate to. That's so... I don't, I mean, everything's interesting to me, but that's so interesting because that is a thing. I mean, that is a thing. Like when we've had enough, you know, I, I, I speak personally, like I know when I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm going passing the point where I'm going to either get sick or I'm going to have a raging headache or it's just not tasting good anymore. And, um, you, you know, but with an, I, this is not just you, this is everybody I've talked to in a recovery. They're like, there is no switch. There, there is does none. not flip. Okay. There's a quote that you had shared with me. You want to read that for our listeners? Yes, I saw it. And I it really kind of summarizes my drinking. Yeah. It says, when I drink a little, I turn into a different person. And that person drinks a lot. So yeah. I gave up drinking. 
that's that's it right there it's interesting okay while you were in college um you mentioned uh, that alcohol made it more comfortable for you to experience intimacy with men it helped you feel you know less self-conscious in those situations and it's something that i i know a lot of women can relate with it's very very common was was into was the intimacy something you wanted in order in order to have it you needed to be intoxicated or was it an unintended result of being intoxicated does that make sense did i say that right i so um there were times when i purposefully drank in order to be um comfortable more willing to pursue yeah or be intimate yes yeah yeah okay so but there were times where it was the unintended result of being <laughs> yeah. intoxicated. Okay, so it was a mixture More often of both. than not, it was an unintended co- yeah. consequence, but it was both. Yeah. Um, and I can recall in college, actually, um, everyone always wanted to challenge me in basketball. Like, all the guys <laughs> wanted to challenge me and prove to me that they could beat, you know, beat me in one-on-one, even though anyway um and, and you're was, better yes I'm like okay <laughs> fine and I remember going behind my dorms uh with uh, a wrestler for Chico State one night and we'd been drinking in our dorms and um and he um he tried to sexually assault me and I remember um being all skinned up um from fighting him off because we were on a cement basketball court and I remember having to face him in the uh dining hall Never, he never acknowledged it. He didn't apologize. And I remember being skinned up and feeling so ashamed and thinking, well, you're an idiot. Why did you go back there with him to begin with? Um, my thinking has completely changed on that, of course. Um, but um, yeah, I put myself in some really, really potentially dangerous situations. Mm-hmm. And I am so lucky that... Um, more things didn't happen to me because I was, when I blacked out, I had no ability to consent to, I, I, and, you know, and that behavior uh, intensified after I graduated from Chico State Mm -hmm. and I moved home to uh, get my teaching credential. Um, I was drinking a a lot Mm -hmm. and having to figure out who I was waking up next to and where my car was parked and it, it yeah. Yeah. And then it's funny cause I think we're going to get into this, but um, we talked about a little bit about the shame cycle where it's like you wake up and you're full of, I don't want to speak for you, but like where you wake up, you feel one. So do you want to talk about that? Oh, that wonderful guilt and shame spiral. Yeah. And I think women in particular are so good at this. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, so you ju- I would wake up um not knowing what I did, but feeling in my bones that it was something I should feel guilty for. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to note I I was raised Catholic. Yeah. Um and um no statement there. It just for me it um instilled um that there was a certain way to live if God was going to love you and there was a certain way to live if if not. Yeah. And um I would wake up and feel this guilt and shame and that just perpetuated my drinking in yeah. a sense because I didn't want to feel that. And and that whole guilt and shame cycle became much worse um 
in my, you know, later you, yeah, yeah. later on in life, but, um, no horrible guilt and shame. And I can remember one time after, um, actually, uh, one time, uh, waking up, uh, in a hotel room, uh, with more than one man and, uh, not having any memory of the evening. I remember my instinct was I drove to church and I just prayed and, um, but I felt horrible about myself, horrible. And that just perpetuates the cycle. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I put myself in the shoes and I, you know, we can all, I mean, we've all been ashamed before of, of certain things and you, there's the behavior and you're ashamed of the behavior and you're upset about the behavior but in order to cope with the shame, you have to re- re-exhibit that behavior. And it's like around and around and around. And that's how this thing spins out. Of mm-hmm. And that's so under, I mean, when you break it down like that, it makes a lot of sense. And that's why recover. you know, that's why there are programs in place. Let's just put it that way. Um, okay. So we're going to, and we're going to get to that. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Um, after college, you moved back home with your parents, as you said, and you started working in education in 1993. And during um, your seven years of teaching middle school, you, you purchased your first home and you, you became reacquainted with a male friend from high school. And not, not long after, the two of you were engaged. In the pre-interview, you talked about some signs of verbal and physical abuse that existed even up until two weeks before you were married. An incident where he threatened physical harm him reaching for a gun, and in the process of stopping him, you became injured. And the question I want to ask next has uh, less to do with alcohol and actually more to do with what your belief was about yourself that allowed you to think that um, this was okay or that prevented you from leaving the relationship. And the reason I ask is because I wonder if whatever belief that was, was that the same internal dialogue that also led to you abusing alcohol? It certainly was all connected, absolutely. And it has to do, I think, with going back to the very beginning, me not feeling like I was ever good enough um, for me, um, for not being comfortable in my own skin, then um, having those uncontrollable thoughts. Um, but n- now that I'm in a recovery, I can recognize that there was kind of a hole within myself and I was looking always for things to fill it with. And mm. that was relationships or alcohol or work, you know, working too hard. Um, um, and I, or, or how I looked, yeah. I mean, i my weight has fluctuated up and down my whole life and I've defined myself, um, by how fa- flat or fat my stomach was. And so all of those things created this, uh, this, how do I say this? Um, I had painted a picture of what I was worth. Mm-hmm. And then you add in there the things that I experienced that I just mentioned with mm-hmm. the guilt and the shame. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't really feel worthy. Worthy. Yeah. And um, the, uh, my first husband was someone who I was dear friends with in high school. And I always had a crush on him. So the fact that he was showing interest in me as an adult, um, I was, oh, I was so like flattered and yeah. it validated me temporarily, yeah. um, until I saw a very different side of him that I'd yeah. never seen in high school. Um, so I don't know if I answered it's a big question. deal. No, no, you did. I mean, I think that it comes down to, um, like 
you know, your sense of self and your, 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 um, your comfortability in your own skin. Um, and when we're uncomfortable in our skin that we're more prone to maybe addiction and abusive substances perhaps. And then we're also too more prone to settle in, in relationships or situations, jobs, whatever that where we deserve more. So I think, I think you're right. I think it is a little connected. Can I add one thing? Um, there are tons of people who can express the same things that I've just expressed who don't, who aren't alcoholics. Um, it is just how I decided to eventually just numb myself completely. It's my story. Um, and it would, you know, I, I really think it's because I didn't have the skills to mm-hmm. manage those feelings and deal with situations. Um, but in no way does it mean if, you know, that these yeah. feelings automatically equal, equal. alcoholism or drug addiction. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I think a lot of people can relate with the story with the, with the first uh, marriage that aren't alcoholic. I mean, I mean, it's just, it's, it's very relatable. Um, in 2003, your, your daughter was born and very soon after you were pregnant with your son, making them only 15 months apart, it was discovered that you had placenta previa with your second pregnancy and at 28 weeks pregnant, you were admitted into the hospital for two months leading up to his birth at 10 days old. Or is it, it ten was, weeks old? It was around. It was around ten days, ten maybe days two weeks. He, yeah. Okay. He underwent surgery and was later diagnosed with cerebral palsy later, um, uh, uh, prior to his first birthday. Um, but that first year uh, to year and a half after he was born, he needed a lot of care. So you made the decision to leave your job in order to be home with him and your daughter, as well, who would have been about three at the time. Um, but your husband also worked from home, which wound up being a recipe for disaster. And that's when things began to escalate between the two of you. Living in that level of chaos, I wonder if it contributed to the alcoholism. Was was this like throwing gasoline on a fire? Can you talk a little bit about that? It was that? emotionally. However, um, so we moved to, da- uh, to from Davis, where I had the support of my parents, to Lodi because it was more affordable during this time where I decided not to work. And, um, uh, at the time my ex-husband was going through a lot of mental health issues. Um, and we were all in the house together. Our kids seemed to be always sick as young kids oh. are. Plus my son, uh, needed a lot of, uh, therapy and interventions. So while emotionally it was slowly changing how I was wired, I didn't drink that often because I needed to have a certain level of alertness around my ex-husband got it um but as i said it was it was slowly changing me that that level of chaos the level of fear um uh, was something that that now that i think about it seems unimaginable Mm -hmm. but i did live it Mm -hmm. um and um i did realize that i was gonna have to try to get out of that marriage. So I convinced my ex-husband to move back to Davis where my parents were right. because I knew that I couldn't really do that alone. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's like this, it's, it's like always being on alert, never being able to rest, never getting any peace. And I think later on in my drinking, that's how I felt all the time, but it was so, so much of it was self-inflicted or I, I was, I was seeking chaos because that's where I had grown to be more comfortable. It was a really weird dynamic for me that I still can't, 
I'm not articulating very well, mm-hmm. but um, I, I was starting to seek chaos in my work um, and just everything had to be heightened all the time. Mm-hmm. And then I needed something to quiet it, to quiet quiet my mind so I poured alcohol on it Mm -hmm. and it was just a really uh bad relationship yeah (laughs) in like a pattern almost Mm -hmm. absolutely a pattern it's yeah okay too many thoughts I'm like trying (laughs) okay um I'm just letting that sink in a second um okay so you moved back to Davis to be closer to your parents as you said because you knew you had to get out of the marriage um and you would need their support um not long after that, your dad was diagnosed with tongue cancer, which also resulted in your parents needing to sell their home, which is the home you grew up in. And they wound up buying a condo that was situated right behind the home you moved to. For the next couple of years, you lived in, as you said, a constant state of chaos and fear, and, and you were on alert. It sounds like you were in survival mode. I mean, that's what that sounds like. Um, your husband, now ex-husband, was very vocal about the violence he wanted to inflict on you. He was he was doing this in front of the kids and would go so far as to tell you stories about how he would kill you and also said he would harm your parents. And there, one day, when your daughter, who was around first grade at the time, was visiting her grandparents, and she she told your mom about everything that he said to you, because he was doing this in front of the kids, um, while your daughter was sitting on your mom's lap. And that's when you decided you needed to divorce him. But But he was still living in the house. So how did that? So I had decided to divorce him. He threatened divorce all the time. Uh, And for some weird reason, I I didn't take him up on that. Um, But I finally said, I I can't do it anymore. Um, I think that my dad's illness kind of put a few tiny things in perspective for me. Um, But I, so we decided to get a divorce he um, insisted on living in the house. He was there for six months while he looked for another place to live. And the incident that you're referring to is an incident um, that happened in front of my children where he held a box cutter up to my throat and told me he was going to kill me and then go over to my parents' house and kill my sick father. Um, So that incident was repeated by my daughter. Mind you, no one, not a soul, not a soul knew that I was in the situation I was in. And I can remember being worried about going out and drinking with my friends because I was terrified that I was going to accidentally, in a blackout, share some of what was going on behind closed doors. Um, So I, um, my mom, my mom's reaction was, uh, she was very angry at me and uh for putting the kids in that situation and i've since worked on some of that with her and i've definitely worked on that within myself mm-hmm. um because i i i couldn't explain all the things that were going on all the threats that were being made i really believed that if i had called the police or tried to leave um that he would just disappear with my kids mm-hmm. um or or and or kill me and um, I was terrified. So I felt the best way to be with my kids and protect my kids was to stay in in the marriage. Uh, And then I decided, well, I'm getting a divorce, so I'm not gonna tell anyone now, let's just get through the divorce, let's move on, let's just move on. Um, So that was a really, uh, that rocked my world when, my mom has since been extremely supportive of me getting a divorce right. and has apologized for her response. Um, my dad's response was very different. It was very paternal. Um, 
Wait, did your mom not want you to get the divorce? She wanted me to get a divorce. Um, so sorry, I shouldn't say that. She has come to understand a little more why I didn't, why I was afraid to tell anyone. Okay. Um, I was so caught up in that abuse cycle. Um, yeah. That I had no sense of myself. I felt no confidence. Um, I had become isolated. You were from, living in fear. Yeah, I was always in fear. Um, I can remember running around our house, closing windows when my hus- ex-husband would rage because I didn't want my parents, who literally almost lived in our backyard, to be able to hear him. Yeah. Um, and um, so, yeah, uh it was just, you know, and then I slowly started telling my friends uh, what was going on. And um, most of them were shocked because, you know, on the surface, I was um, confident. I was successful professionally. I was a good mom. Um, I've always been very outspoken mm-hmm. and friendly and, you know, I had just, I had an exterior that was far different than what was going on inside you don't you don't look like um a battered woman or you know what i'm saying like that's i mean i think that's what you're trying to say and what i've learned is is that there is no you never know you never know you don't know who you what i have learned is i never know what someone is going through period period and that's why i need to always be kind Mm -hmm. but you don't know who is struggling with alcoholism you don't know who is struggling or you know an abusive marriage you don't know who's struggling with physical illness, mental illness, right. like none of it. None of it's, it. It's, 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 we don't wear a sign around our necks true. That, that tell the world. So, yeah. yeah, and a lot of people don't want to. I mean, and some, some people will, you know, they overshare. And I was one of those people when I, when I initially got, got sick with my physical illness a long, long time, 17 years ago. But there are people who, um, you know, they don't want anyone to know their stuff. So, but everybody has something. It goes back to that shame, I think. Yeah, yeah. And and I have chosen to share my story. I've probably shared more details with you today than I have with anyone else besides my sponsor. Yeah. But I I am no longer ashamed, and I have learned for me that if my story can help any one person Mm -hmm. then i'm okay with with putting it out there and being vulnerable that is not the case for everyone uh some people have a lot of fears around their professional life and their personal life meeting i mean there's all kinds of reasons but yeah i said this is who i am this Mm -hmm. is part of my story and i can tell it Mm -hmm. and the chips are going to fall where they may well i i have a lot of respect and admiration for you i mean it's it takes a lot of courage to tell your story. And I think that anybody that would look at this and think otherwise, I, I just don't see how anybody could think otherwise personally because of, um, you know, there's a message in all of this and I, and we're, and we're going to get to get to that. Um, uh, a couple of years later, you, your dad passed away and you moved to Folsom, uh, from Davis for those who are from the area, it's about an hour away. And this was after you split from your ex-husband, um, but you did wind up getting remarried. And because you told your dad that you would take care of your mom, uh, you cover, you offer to have her move in with you. And she wanted to buy a, a home for you and your family and her and to live in, uh, which from the outside seems like a, a nice situation. But the dynamic between the two of you was one that had you feeling like you were, as you said, 16 again, with the constant criticism and questioning. Um, 
what role well first of all i actually have two questions one is going into that situation did you anticipate it being a problem or and what role did that play in the addiction um i didn't think very long or hard about moving up to Folsom with my mother. I had met my current husband. He lived in Folsom. He had just moved his parents from San Francisco to Folsom. Um, and I wanted to get out of Davis. I had kind of been everywhere I went in town. I was consoling people about my dad's death. He, he'd gone to high school there. And I just was kind of, I just needed a change. Mm -hmm. um, so I just didn't think very hard about it. And my mom and dad were a tremendous help with raising my kids, very involved. And so I thought, okay, that's a positive, you know? Um, and um, I, at first, it was the excitement of the new situation and the house and newly married and mm -hmm. everything was good. Um, and over time, I allowed my living situation, and I say that specifically or intentionally, mm -hmm to make me feel like I was a teenager again, living back in my parents' house. And so again, I didn't feel like I was good enough. I didn't, um, I didn't feel like an adult. I didn't feel uh, as though my parenting decisions were respected or, you know, um, uh, not enforced is not the right word, but. Yeah. Um, and supported. So, supported, thank yeah. you. Ooh, it's early. That's um, okay. <laughs> And um, <clears throat> then problems, as she became more limited physically, um, it just impacted the family in a certain way. Um, and it became very hard. And I found myself wanting to be away from the house, mm. mm -hmm. which in my alcoholic brain meant I should be someplace getting my medicine, right. AKA alcohol. So that's when my pattern of um, stopping at a bar in between work and home yeah. became a pattern. Yeah. Completely forgetting that I was also spending time away from my children and my right. husband. Right, right. Yeah. It's like the, the way I understand addiction, um, and tell me if I'm right, it, like, you almost you can use any situation to spin it as a as a permission to abuse is that kind absolutely of it? yeah I, it, I could drink at anybody anything if you made me mad i'll show you i'm gonna drink it's that whole i'm yeah. gonna drink the poison to punish you it doesn't work but i would get i would drink when i was happy i would drink when i was stressed i would drink when i was sad um, I would drink when I was at any sort of party. I would drink when I was camping. I would drink when I was on a date <laughs> with my husband. Like I could find any reason to drink. Mm -hmm. um, and if it was just one drink, it wouldn't have been a problem. Yeah. But we've already established, established that, that that was not right. uh, what I did. Right. Um, okay. So the next part of the story is what you described as being the big the big crash. I put it in quotes, and I'm not sure if, if I'm not sure if this happened before or after. But you had gotten weight loss surgery, and and you went on to lose 130 pounds. And you mentioned that your medical team warned you that sometimes um, patients will actually trade their addiction for food for something else. We didn't talk a lot a bit about this, but in your case, um, it was alcohol that you that you did um, trade. I guess, trade the addiction for, yes. um, did, did you consider yourself addicted to food? Did they, was that a consideration? I, 
I don't know if I was addicted to food, but I definitely had an unhealthy relationship with food. With food. Uh, yeah. Which was all tied into my self-image. Um, yeah. I did, I guess, use food at times to medicate myself in a way. Maybe when like you to were medicate To, to mm. soothe my feelings. Um, and um, they told me, you know, transfer addiction is really high, uh, especially in women after they get weight loss surgery. So you just can't drink. Um, and I was a beer and wine drinker at that time. Mm-hmm. And, um, you after, didn't believe it was gonna be a problem. No, I didn't. But I, so I tried it, but then I realized that beer and wine made me feel icky. So I, at that time I moved to vodka oh. and that's where a lot of things changed because all my, my patterns, um, uh, with drinking, I just got to a blackout faster. Um, because of the surgery, because of the surgery. Yes. And because I switched to hard alcohol. Oh, oh yes, 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 yes. Good. Yes. Okay. That makes sense. That also meant that I could no longer go to my bar, um, which only served beer Beer and wine. wine. So I found a new bar Mm -hmm. that was closer to home. Um, and, um, yes. Yeah. Made it. Spent a lot of money there. Um, when when the big crash hit it was almost like it was like a domino effect it started with the pipe leak in your foundation of your home that caused the water to come up from the floor what a nightmare and uh, meanwhile your mom is still living with you and then of course came covid and at that time you were the principal of two different high schools in the district you talked about how isolation is where alcoholism thrives and the downstream effects were significant you described a pattern of drinking that began in the morning um, and would last throughout the day. And if you didn't drink, you would get sick. And I asked you about this in your pre-interview about, about the detox effects that would occur when someone doesn't drink. Um, I'm a little bit familiar with it. Uh, it, it, it uh, my question is if, if that's what actually keeps them drinking longer, um, than maybe they would otherwise, because they know if they stop, then they're going to have to go through this horrendous few days of detoxing. Can you, can you tell us about your, well, tell us about your experience during that time, but also if you want to chime in about sure. that. So yeah, I call it the big crash because it's just where everything came crashing down for me. And um, COVID, I think we saw a lot of people lean on alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's also where the the mommy alcohol culture changed. Yeah. Um, but um, for me, it was just... I need connection with people. Um, it's something that is so important to me. And being isolated and doing a job from the laptop, on, you know, sitting on my bed, having my kids home from school, like it was as I, it was Torture. the same for everyone. And most people go through COVID and don't become alcoholics. But um, but a lot I, of people gained weight. Yes, I mean, a lot of yes, people had there were thing, there yeah. are some issues. Um, and I I think that. Um, you know, all those things in a, in a row just felt like they were crashing in on me and I didn't have the skills to deal with them emotionally. Mm-hmm. And it was overwhelming. I couldn't quiet my mind. I wasn't able to really sleep. COVID messed up, you know, hours of the day. You know, you, they all ran together. Um, and I just was medicating. And then it... At the end of COVID, uh, or towards the end when we were starting to come go back to school, I was experiencing. Oh, I don't want to skip ahead, but I was experiencing no, okay. that I had a pinched nerve in my neck, yeah. and I was in such pain, um, debilitating. I had gone to the emergency room twice. 
because the pain was so bad it was hard to breathe and I don't I didn't like the pain meds and so I just drank more Use alcohol. yeah um and um so it was it was just a really dark time where I lost myself completely I didn't want to keep drinking yeah I didn't know how to stop I did try on my own to try to stop um not on my own I did get detox meds right from Kaiser and I did the outpatient and detox was not fun but I don't think that 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 is not what that's not what it is or kept me from wanting to stop yeah I didn't want to feel yeah I didn't I didn't want I didn't know how to feel the things I was feeling I didn't want to feel yeah detox is unattractive and it's painful and it's Mm. it sucks but but it's temporary yeah um, and not drinking anymore is, is a long-term commitment, uh, commitment yeah. and it's so unknown. It's like, how am I going to function without drinking? I get it. Yeah. Um, when you would, when you got on the detox meds, um, was that before you went back in person to work? Like, were you preparing to be back in person? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, and you stayed you stayed sober for about three weeks. Your family believed it was was two months. Did it just sort of like you got sober for three weeks and you adjusted your schedule to where maybe you're drinking after work and they in hiding yes. it kind of thing? Yes. Okay. Um because I I um I didn't uh, drink at work and this whole video of this poor teacher oh, yeah. that's circulating just hits me to the core um for a lot of reasons. But um but I did get to a point where my body needed alcohol to feel normal. So when we returned to school, like remember initially we would return and there were no students, but when we returned to school and I would not drink during the day, I did not feel well. And mm-hmm. I would go straight to my local bar mm-hmm. after work. Mm-hmm. Like I, I sweats, stomach didn't feel well, heart, you know, wasn't clear thinking. Like it was physically, I physically needed it. So you have the physical addiction. And then for me, I had, it was an emotional, it was a mental, it was was a thinking problem. Yeah. And like you described as when you would walk in, they would put the drink in front of you and it's like this relief would wash over you. Absolutely. Like I'm, I'm safe now. It was very similar to the feeling I got when I took my first drink at 15. Mm. I would get that just knowing that I was about to drink. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would continue to drink at home. Yeah. Was there, how, how does that, what does that look like as far as like, you? they didn't know, you're like your husband didn't know for a while that you were drinking again. Do you hide it or you, you say you're going somewhere that you're not going and you end up going somewhere? Like, how does that work? He, how, he, yeah. he picked up, um, well, so my, my husband is, so supportive and so he loving. Is. He sounds great. But he was the biggest co-signer of all my bullshit. Excuse okay. Me. So like um, a, a little bit of an enabler? Um, he, yes, absolutely. So very codependent. He's done a lot of work on himself since I went to rehab. But um, I would hide it. like, yeah. and, and I thought I was great at it. I, I wasn't. Um, but um, I was hiding. I would make up excuses. I had to work late. 
Uh, every time I went to the car wash, it was like a two hour ordeal. Yeah. Um, I would have to run errands constantly. Yeah. Um, there was alcohol hidden in all sorts of places in my house. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, they, they caught on very quickly. My daughter always caught on first. Yeah. She could tell by looking at me if I'd even had one drink. Um, and, uh, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Like, because you say it, you had to drink in order to feel normal. So is it that you, you look and appear so normal and act so normal that they almost don't know because you're drinking actually to feel normal, but there is a look that you get that they can tell. There is a look. And, um, I was, I was functional until I wasn't. Yeah. And, 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 and it switched like that. Yeah. Um, so what would normally happen is I would go to the bar Mm -hmm. and I would have several drinks. I would come home and my daughter could tell I had been drinking. So that would irritate me, believe Mm -hmm. it or not. Mm -hmm. And I would get defensive and I would also feel like crap about myself. So I would continue drinking. Mm -hmm. And then boom, at some point I was just, there was, there was nothing here. You could see it in my eyes. I was there and talking, but I was not present Mm -hmm. at all. Um, and, and that was, that was a really fast, that, that was a a fast transition for me. Um, and it really got to the point I'm describing when I started experiencing the chronic back pain and that was, um, started in spring. So it was over the summer that it got really bad. Um, I had surgery in September, um, and it continued to get worse. Yeah. Um, I'm, I, I, I wondered about this. I wanted, like in your case, like you, well, we talked about, you know, the excuses that addicts will make. We talked a little about that already, but in your case, um, it, was the stress of the flood or your job, the pain you had from your neck and then your back. I'm get for the people that love you. And this is, this is what I would think. The people that love you, they want you to feel better. So they excuse the drinking because they just want you to be happy and feel better. But at the same time, of course, they're worrying about you and they want you sober. Um, so it's like, Ooh, they're kind of left like not really knowing how to, I would think if I was in that position, it's like, yes, drink. Cause I want you to feel better, but no, don't drink because I want you sober and I want you safe. Um, what, but your husband did eventually confront you a month after the surgery. What what did he say that day that shifted everything for you? So prior to him talking to me, um, I was to the point where I was really physically ill. I was throwing up multiple times a day, violently throwing up to the point I would my nose would bleed. I would look at myself in the mirror every morning and tell myself that Michelle, you're, you're killing yourself. You Mm -hmm. have to stop. Mm -hmm. And, um, at that point I was off work because of my neck and I, within an hour I would be drinking again. Mm. Um, I also had told my husband that that I, I had been thinking about if the family would be better off without me, Mm -hmm. which was shocking for me to even hear myself say, because I was so blessed in so many ways. And I just couldn't see it because I was so sick. So he sat me on the bed and said with tears in his eyes, and my husband is not a crier. 
he said, I need my wife back. Mm -hmm. He said, you're going to drink yourself to death or you're going to hurt someone in your car. Mm -hmm. And we all need you back. And he said similar things to me before, but I really believe um, that it was a higher power at work in that moment because there was just a sliver of willingness on my part. And after that, we both committed to finding a place for me to go. I told him I can't do outpatient. I can't sit on a Zoom meeting and get sober because there's nothing stopping me from drinking through that meeting. I need to be removed from my environment. I need to be away from my mom. The triggers here, I need to to go to rehab. Yeah. Um, And unfortunately, Kaiser wanted me to do the outpatient all over again. And um, so they did not pay for my rehab. But thank you to some relatives, my husband, um, I was able to go to Duffy's in Calistoga. And um, I was dropped off on my birth birthday, mm-hmm. October 14th, 2021. Mm-hmm. I was so dehydrated, so sick, very thin. Um, I drank the night before because we had a birthday, just a family dinner. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, but did not drink in the morning, mm-hmm. and I still blew a really high. They they breathalyze you when you get oh, there. Oh wow, really? Um, I was just pickled. Yeah, I was so pickled, and I love the saying in AA. You know, um, once you're once you're a pickle, you can never go back to being a cucumber, and um, that's kind of how <laughs> how it is. But um, yeah, so I I was dropped off at Duffy's. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. Um, and you knew like you, when he told you and you said that you, you felt like this was like a divine intervention at that point, you knew this is the end. Like, this is it. Yes. Yeah. Which is, which is odd for yeah. me because yeah. at that moment of my life, I absolutely did not believe in God. Yeah. And if I did, I definitely didn't think that God cared about me. Right. 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 Like, Yeah. Um, so you, you spent 45 days in rehab and spent the first four days detoxing. You described rehab as being like like a reset where your only responsibilities were to shower, do your laundry, change your sheets once a week. Um, how did those 45 days change everything for you, hmm. that experience? Well, first of all, uh, rehab absolutely saved my life. Yeah. Um, rehab introduced me to AA, um, which up to that point, point I was like there's no way I am it's a bunch of old white men they wrote this book that has a chapter on wives it's like so sexist they believe in God they want you to do these steps they want you to go and apologize to everyone you've wronged there's no way one that I can do that there's too many people at, or that I'd want to do it um it, it just it it was not in, for me at all so I went to rehab I detoxed um, I experienced the hell of detox. That detox was much worse than the first one. Oof. I was so sick um, that I I finally said, well, yeah, I, I'm an alcoholic, clearly. Like no normal person gets as sick when they don't drink. Um, I worked really hard. I paid attention. I followed their direction. I made really meaningful connections with other people. And here we all are, some straight from jail, prison, some homeless, some very successful, some married, some divorced, some uh, straight, some gay, like 
all walks mm-hmm. of life and we're in the same place for the same reason, just wanting to get well. Mm-hmm. And it is a bond that I had been oddly seeking mm-hmm. <laughs> without knowing it. Yeah. Um, and it changed my life. Um, getting out of rehab though is terrifying. Um, having to re-enter your life um, and face the people that were collateral damage for your drinking is terrifying. Yeah. Um, the, being in rehab is easy yeah, yeah. compared to just coming out of rehab. Because they prepare you for that? Like they, how to enter the They do. World? I had to have a, an exit plan that was really detailed, specific meetings I was going to go to. I also did an outpatient program, mm-hmm. a different one this time. Um, I, because of my next surgery in September, I was still on leave from work because I had complications and I had a lot of sick days. So I was, I was out for almost that entire school year, mm-hmm. which allowed me not to have to explain to my employer where I was, which was a ble- another blessing. Yeah. And it allowed me to completely explore and commit to the program that I've chosen chosen for my recovery, and that's AA. Yeah. I was going to two meetings a day, um, meeting with my sponsor, reading, praying, trying to meditate. <laughs> Still isn't really my thing. Um, but it was through that initial recovery period where I began believing in a higher power. Yeah. Um, and that, that experience, that faith has been that faith has replaced fear Mm. and it has filled along with the program that hole that I kept pouring alcohol into Mm -hmm. it's it's delivered on promises that vodka always made but never delivered on um because let's be real vodka for me was it was my best friend. It was my lover. Mm-hmm. It was more important to me than my my children. Mm-hmm. And I, it makes me sick to even say that. But vodka had become like air for me. I needed it. Yeah. Um, and so, sorry. I, no, I no, go no. On, this is but... so good. I mean, like it's, I like, I've never heard it described that way, but I, I love the way you described that. You replaced fear with faith. And that is so profound because those who have walk in faith of some kind i'm not no i'm not giving any specific religion but some kind of faith they tend to have less fear in life you know and it's just i'd never heard described that way but i love that and it's i'm just so when you talked about having that hole and you're always trying to fill that hole in your life um that is something I also hear very consistent with people who don't, you know, don't have a specific faith. So, and this isn't a podcast to like get everybody to find their faith, but, but I think it is profound, no, especially and, in recovery. And, and my higher power has evolved and changes and I don't have to put a name on my higher yeah, power. I yeah. don't have to identify it, um, you know, really loosely. Yeah. My higher power is just kind of mother nature and yeah. just knowing that there's something bigger than myself and, and, and knowing that I have always been looked after by something. Yep, yep. And it was proven to me time and time again, I, I didn't end up in jail. I didn't end up hurting someone in my car. I, I was given the chance to get well. Mm-hmm. Um, I see it in my children every day. 
Um, I see it in the relationships that I've been able to rebuild Mm -hmm. because I caused so much wreckage. Um, But that most people, I did lose some relationships in Mm -hmm. sobriety, but most people, they allowed me back in. And the only way I can really, truly apologize to those people is to by making living amends, to stay sober, to be of service to others, and to just every morning wake up and say, I want to be better than I was yesterday. Yeah, to what? Yeah. Um, well, when you were returning from rehab, you, you knew that those living circumstances with your mom couldn't continue. And, and she does take pain medication because of that. With the program you're in, you knew that it was a risk to your sobriety. So um, it did have an effect on your relationship with your mom. Um, but like you said, it, it affected your friendships as well. Um, be- because like the way you put it, your brain was really rewired after getting sober for you. Um, what has that been like for you as far as the changing of the relationships? Has that, has that, have you ever had a moment to where your sobriety was at risk because of what was happening in your relationships? Um, no, thank, thank goodness. Um, I have not wanted to drink since I finished detox. Amazing. Um, I have wanted to quiet my mind. Yeah. I have wanted to to be a little numb. Yeah. But I found other ways to, other ways. to achieve that. Um, and I'm really lucky. And I'll knock on wood. And mm. it, it could change at any time. Uh-huh. Um, my alcoholism is a little monster doing push-ups in the back of my brain waiting for me to let my guard down. Yeah. Um, so the relationship... So my mom, I want to say... I'm. I'm not saying my mom abused, uh, no, and and I wasn't suggesting, no, I, I, but I just want to say that, but she had a lot of it in the house and it wasn't up to me to tell her how to manage her pain, but it was a real concern for me because pills were never my thing, but we always say they're not your thing yet when you're an alcoholic. So, um, that was devastating. It caused, uh, so much havoc, uh, in the relationship between my mom because she felt completely discarded and taken advantage of. And I can understand how she felt that way. Yeah. She felt like she was around for the crappy years. And now that I'm in recovery, you don't need her. I don't need her anymore. And I understand that. Um, it affected my relationship with my brother who is, I've always been really close to, and it affected my extent relationships with my extended family because they really felt like I, was unkind to my mother mm-hmm. through a lot of therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, we are in a good place today and I think we have healthy boundaries. That's what I was lacking right. in so many of my relationships. I didn't have boundaries or if I had a boundary, they moved. It was evident yeah. in all my relationships. Um, but, um, I also have been surprised to see that some of my lifelong childhood friends I think they don't really know what to do with me sober. Yeah. Um, and I've made amends to most of them. Um, there's one that just doesn't seem ready. Um, but it, it hurts. I've, yeah. I've, it, recovery can be really lonely while also being so connected. Cause I feel super connected to people in my program. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes I don't feel connected in um, 
my other relationships. I'm getting better at it. Right. Uh, I'm getting better at just handling it head on. Like if people seem a little uncomfortable because we're going to dinner and they know I don't drink, it's like, do you? Yeah. You're not, I, I have trouble with alcohol. Yeah. You can drink around me. Yeah. Um, I can be around alcohol. There's some people that can't, Yeah. Uh, but I can. So it's just kind of, it, it's just setting new boundaries. And I describe my sober life as kind of being on an island and who I allow on that island um, is serious business to me. I'm very selective because I'm sober and I'm incredibly happy and I see life so differently. I need to protect that. And if my island is tiny, that's okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it makes, it makes sense. And, um, but I'm not lonely. It's like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you have a whole new network of people who are, are your people. But it, it, it makes sense to emerge a, a, an, an entirely new person. I mean, you would be an entirely new person then. Well, yeah. I talked to you about how my the abuse in my first marriage rewired me. It changed every bit of me. I was a different person. And then I did say, I, I am a totally different person sober mm -hmm. and I some people say oh I want to get back to the old me I want to be a newer version of myself a better version I I don't want to ever be yeah. a, the old me I want to be the new me mm -hmm. um, and I have this amazing opportunity to do that because mm -hmm. um, my program just shows me a different way to live mm -hmm. it's shown me a different way to see myself in the world mm -hmm. others you know it it's it, like a, it gives you a new pair of eyes absolutely yeah. yeah absolutely um so you've now been sober for almost two years um october will be two you attend it you attend currently eight aa meetings alcoholic anonymous meetings per week you're part of a rehab alumni you sponsor three women in the aa program um, for those listening who might be struggling with an addiction or struggling to stay sober, how important, because I know a lot of people will try to go at it alone, um, how how important is it to be part of a support network like AA? So I believe that recovery is a very personal journey. Yeah. And I can only speak from my experience and what worked for me. Sure. Um, with that, I always have With that a, disclaimer. With that, <laughs> with that disclaimer, I do not believe that any of us can stay sober. We can get sober, mm -hmm. but we can't stay sober without support. There are so many different programs out there besides AA, but I think, and, and even more with COVID, there's so many online things where you can sit in a meeting with people from all over the world. Mm -hmm. um, but I think you need a program. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I just, the disease wants us alone and eventually dead. Mm -hmm. And if we are not connected to other people who are, who have experienced similar things, I think it's easy to isolate again. Yeah. Um, I know that a big part also of my recovery, besides the 12 steps, mm -hmm. uh, and part of that is being of service to other people. Um, I think part of anyone's recovery needs to include that because that takes us out of our head. 
um, when I'm being of service to someone else, I'm not worried about quieting my own thoughts because yeah. I'm not thinking about me. I think as an alcoholic, I was extremely self-centered. I think mm-hmm. most are. Mm-hmm. Um, and being of service is, is just a natural remedy for that. Yeah. Um, so I, I would suggest to anyone struggling first, it's okay that you're struggling to reach out for help. Um, that um, there there doesn't need to be shame involved. That it takes a lot of courage and bravery t- to admit that you need help. Yeah, and um, that um, it's not always easy. Life keeps lifing at you. It'll throw you crap. Um, but with the support of a program, I have different. I have new tools to handle that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also want to say that when I first started going to AA meetings, they talk about the promises and people talk about, I am so-and-so I'm a grateful alcoholic. And I used to want to punch him in the face because <laughs> I'm like, what are you talking about? Like I yeah. can never drink again. And, and that's something I'm certain of. If I drink again, I, I will be right back where I left off. So, um, but where was I going? Oh, um, the, the, the program, it's hard. And, and, and the promises though, they actually have come true for me. Mm-hmm. And the life that I had hoped for when I say was in early recovery, it, my life has exceeded that in every way. Mm-hmm. I, I am present for my family and I can pause now. And I know that sometimes first thought wrong, second thought wrong, you know, um, I'm a kinder, gentler person. And when I look in the mirror, I don't see a puffy face and a bloody nose and a a sick alcoholic. I I see someone that I like. Yeah. And that... um, And you're proud of... I am proud of myself. And that's why I want to stay sober. Yeah. So I can continue to feel that way. Yeah. Um, Sorry, every time we talk, I have to like, I'm letting it sink in. Um, let me look at the time. Okay. Um, you have said that you feel, um, and we're, we're getting ready to wrap up here, but um, you said that you feel like a better human and that you, you apply the 12 steps in Alcoholics Anonymous to each area of your life. Like you really live by them. And you're at a point now where, where you do get to feel your feelings. And you said that alcohol... Um, would not only, it's funny cause I never thought about this way, but you said the alcohol would not only numb your pain, but it also numb your joy. And, um, that has to be life changing to, to feel joy again. Um, I wonder how that's been for you because you just recently sent your son to college and I know what that's like. I did, did that a couple of years ago. It's a mixture of emotions. It's heart breaking, but you're so proud in all of it. How has it been to feel those feelings? It's been a lot, yeah. <laughs> um, but I'm grateful that I have been able to feel all those feelings. Um, on the way home from dropping him off at Reno, I cried most of the way, and my heart—I mean, my body—physically ached. Yeah, and I—I said, I—I I remember thinking on the way home, I hate this feeling. I hate this feeling. You made me cry. <laughs> but, but I also n- reminded myself really quickly that I was so incredibly lucky yeah. 
to feel because you can't, if, if you're not feeling pain ever, you don't get to feel that joy. So and true. he was happy and he's in a good place. And before I left, I was, I was talking to them about, cause I'm now an empty nester, as you said, Yeah. he made a comment. He goes, mom, I'm ready for this. And I'm ready because I was raised by a beast. Aww. And he, he said beast, mind you, in the most loving way possible. Yeah, I no, took it I as bet. a compliment. Yeah. And I was like, I was present for that. So I have to walk through the, the, the hard feelings to get to the other side so I can feel joy. Mm-hmm. And I could not do that when I was drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm, I'm grateful for all the feels. Yeah. You know, part of the beauty, the beauty in life is, it sounds so, what's the word, sadistic to say, but it's the pain because it, without the pain, you don't, it's like you, it's like you, you, you don't know how good things can be unless you've had it bad. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that we can all agree. Like, it's almost yes. like when you have the flu and you feel so sick, you're so grateful when that passes and yes. you're well again. It's like, oh, it feels so good to feel good. Without pain, you really don't know how great joy can feel. So pain is, I mean. And I think pain shapes us it totally, more than joy does. 100%. And that's how, unfortunately, that's how most of us have to learn our lessons. Yes. You know, we have to go through the crap in order to to learn. And I actually heard it said one time, I'm probably going to screw this up, but it said like, yes, you can learn lessons through joy, but pain is more efficient or something like that. I like that. Yeah. I got I to gotta find that quote. Um Okay, so as we wrap up, I, I want to thank you for being here today and for sharing your story so openly and honestly. I think, I think when we talk about alcoholism or addiction in general, it can conjure up all kinds of stereotypes in our heads and what that might look like. I have always sort of assumed that addiction was the result. I mean, up until meeting you, I, I, I really assumed that addiction was a result of, of like trauma or PTSD or genetic or... Um, or that there was some obvious link to why or where an addiction began. I think today we learned that um, sometimes it's not so obvious that there doesn't have to be a specific reason. And more importantly, I think I learned that it doesn't really matter anyway because a person doesn't need to, through their trauma, earn the right to be an addict. And that means that nobody is exempt. I really... I. I really appreciate you taking the time to come out here and tell your story. I think I think hearing this will open up a lot of eyes. Um, I hope that you feel good about it. I've, I just feel really grateful to be able to share my story. Okay. And before I came in, I just uh, prayed on it and kind of asked my higher power to speak through me. And yeah. hopefully it will help someone else because other people did that for me when I needed it. Yeah. And I, and I, I think that this is an act of service, honestly. Um, I can think of many people who will benefit from hearing this. And, um, you know, this is the first time, as you said, that you've really come out really publicly and told your whole, whole story. So you are, this is a very courageous act. And I just, I want to recognize you for that. Um, so thank you. And to all of our listeners, um, as always, thanks you guys for listening. And we will see you back here next week. That's all for this episode of Humanity Unlocked. Do you have a personal story to share with us? We're all ears. Visit humanityunlockedpodcast.com and send us an inquiry. Thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoyed this conversation, please leave us a five-star review and hit subscribe to hear weekly episodes of our show.